Okay, this works. Um, can you can you put the light down on halfway? Like we usually do. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that that's much better. Thank you. Thank you. Well, now it's more. Well, it's more. Oh, this is fifty percent. Oh, and this is blinding people. Yeah. I got to try it off Yeah, I'll trade you one day. Um, so I have a few different subjects to speak about today. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for coming. Um, um, yeah, that, that, that's, yeah. So long as it, it, it sort of shines in my eyes, I have to kind of look, look down a little bit. You don't want to you know, I'm going to sort of with your developer because uh, yesterday was unfortunately the, uh, the most holy day in the Jewish calendar. Um, and the most, in a certain way, unusual holiday as far as the whole litany of Jewish holidays go. And I think it's worth to reflect on it a little bit. Because um, the calendar of Jewish holidays, first of all, was based on agriculture. Oh, oh my God. Hey, sorry for that. Um, Boy. Okay. Uh... Is it this? No. No. It's just a passion for a dog. Do something. I think that's in the control room. That's everything. Um, so um, the Jewish following calendar, it was mainly an agricultural calendar, which makes sense since the, since the people who were living there a long time ago were by and large pastoralists um, or they were farmers. And it's normal to have holidays at the beginning of the season, at the end of the season, the middle of the season. And um, <clears throat> that was the rhythm of the Jewish holidays. So Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Those are the three, uh, we'll call them pilgrimage holidays. Those were the holidays when Jews who were living in Palestine made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem with their offerings to get the blessing from the priest to give their offerings, sometimes to pay their taxes, and then they would go back. Um, the holiday which was um, mentioned in the Bible as the the, the no, it's day of blowing the shofar. Uh, it doesn't mention it doesn't mention anything about being the new year, because as far as the Jewish um, agricultural year is concerned, the year started in the spring. So the uh, yeah, it's, it's okay. It's, it's in my eyes, but it's okay. So the the month of Nisan, which is the uh, the, the month in which Passover appears was the first month of the year. At some point or other, much, much later on, they changed the new year to be in the month of Tishri, which is the one that comes in fall, which has no logical sense of being a new year starting in fall. But in any case, that's what they did. 
the um, other holidays, they are called historical holidays, biblical holidays. So these were holidays which were instituted for a historical reason. Something happened on those holidays, and uh, the people then committed. The events were so important to them that they commemorated them uh, in the Jewish calendar. But as I say, post-biblical, because these things happened uh, long after the original books of the Bible were written, and so they were inserted much later. Elements of Judaism which split off from the main Jewish body before these books were written never celebrated those holidays. So, uh, in other words, say Ethiopian Jews or... or uh, other Jews, uh, Samaritan Jews, don't celebrate those holidays because they happened, uh, you know, in the time of, you know, either away from or before the split. Uh, so that brings us to Yom Kippur. So the Yom Kippur is, in a certain sense, unusual. It's unusual in the in one sense that it is a biblical holiday, so it's written in the Bible that you have to observe this day. Um, and it's not tied to any agricultural event. But what it is, what, it, what, what makes it so important is that it's so unusual in so many ways. So that's why I think I'll mention to you, you may know about some of these things, but I'll, I'll just, I want to just briefly outline how different this holiday is from all the other holidays. So um, it's a holiday on which the high priest, so first of all, We'll say this, that uh, before the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, um, the Jewish religious calendar and the religion itself was really temple-based. Um, it was one where the Jewish people were divided into three castes, we'll call them castes or groupings. Um, one caste of which came from the tribe of the Levites. So there were originally 12 tribes. And when the Jews came to settle in Palestine, um, only 11 of these 12 tribes got a land portion. And that means that those 12 tribes, the, the 11 of the 12 tribes settled in a specific place within, you know, uh, we'll call it Israel, within Israel. So each tribe was allotted a certain place, bigger ones, smaller ones, but they were all associated with a certain spot in the country. There was one tribe that didn't get a land allotment. That was the tribe of Levi, because their job was to be teachers and to spread themselves out among all the different tribes and act as teachers. They also, within that tribe, one cast of that tribe were priests. The job of the priest was to look after the temple. So that was the essence of how things were set up in, in those days. And the highlight of the temple uh, cult was the Yom Kippur. So on Yom Kippur, the um, Jews assembled in the uh, courtyard of the temple. And the temple had three, the way it was built, it had three kind of different buildings in it. And uh, the temple design is a design which we see all over the Middle East. 
So it wasn't unique to the Jews who had this sort of structure. Lots of different uh, groups had the same basic idea. The basic idea was that as you went up higher and higher, uh, the buildings got smaller and smaller until you came into uh, a sanctuary called the Holy of Holies. Now, within the Jewish religion, in the Jewish uh, faith, or the Jewish uh, practice, the Holy of Holies was a place where God's presence dwelt. And it was also uh, supposedly where the Ten Commandments were kept that Moses had handed down from the Mount Sinai. So this was a very special place. The high priest was only allowed to go in there once a year. And that one day was on Yom Kippur. So no one else was allowed to go in there because it was that home. Only the high priest could go in. So as is mentioned in the in the uh, in the prayers on Yom Kippur, before the high priest went in, they tied a rope around his leg so that if somehow or other he should die, um, uh, have a heart attack or something. In the Holy of Holies, they could drag him up because nobody else was allowed to go in. And that's where he made his once yearly uh, communion with God to ask forgiveness for himself and all of the all of the people of Israel. So that's how Yogi Kippur became such an important day. Also, there were many sacrifices, animal sacrifices that were done on that day. And to commemorate that list of sacrifices, Yom Kippur is the only day in the Jewish uh, prayer calendar that you have five different services um, taking place, five different, yeah, we'll call them services or prayer sections, prayer services. Um, now, um, the other thing about this Yom Kippur day is it's the only day on which when the priest came out of the temple, he spoke the name of God itself. So you know that in Jewish calendar and in Jewish practice, um, we never say God's name. It's written down, but it's never spoken. And uh, Yom Kippur, the high priest actually said God's name. And to this day, uh, observing Jews, they never write the word God, G-O-D, they put G-D. And, and in Hebrew, um, even the name, the substitute names for God are only spoken in prayers and not on in regular uh, conversation. They would change the name of God to the name. They would say the word the name because the name means God. So that's how they do. So they, they, they keep that thing. Also on Yom Kippur, another special event occurred that in the temple times, they took a goat and they tied a red cord around the goat's neck and they sent the goat away. And that's where the word scapegoat comes from. So it was the idea was, of course, that you pile all of the sins of the people on the goat. And then that goat goes away in the desert and takes away all the sins with it. So there's another practice that was just done on only on Yom Kippur. Um, also, they do the shofar on Yom Kippur, which was uh, beside Rosh Hashanah, the only time that it's blown. Um, and uh, the idea of uh, fasting comes from the restriction that was saying that you should 
The Hebrews say you should torture your souls. And the rabbis interpreted torturing your souls to be fasting. The other things, the other prohibitions beside fasting are not wearing uh, leather clothing, uh, not bathing, not putting on perfume, and not having sexual relations. So these are all the restrictions that were added to what Yom Kippur is all about. Um, and it's the only day that if, if Yom Kippur falls on a Shabbat, that you have to, Yom Kippur takes priority. So in other words, you're allowed to fast on Shabbat, even though Shabbat is normally a day when you're supposed to be eating and enjoying yourself. It's also the only time when the Talit is born at night. So lots of different things happen with that day. Um, also, um, let me see, yeah, it's also the only day in which the, the, the people who are leading the service, they bow down and lie down on the ground flat, so as to really kind of exaggerate how important it is for them to ask for forgiveness. And lots of different things that, uh, are special about Yom Kippur, and these are some of them. But this Yom Kippur, and Yom Kippur was recognized by the United Nations as an official day of um, a holiday so that no, supposedly no meetings are supposed to take place on Yom Kippur. So it has this kind of international recognition. Um, and of course, it was the day that the war started in 1973. Some of you saw the movie Golda, you realized that uh, the Egyptians took advantage of the kind of 100% stoppage day in Israel to surprise the Israelis by crossing the Suez Canal on that day, which they succeeded in doing. And the movie tells the story of what happened after that. Um, in Israel, about 70% of people, of Jewish people, say they fast on that day. So, so in other words, it's a day when even most people who are secular will kind of take the day off and uh, and the streets are usually quite empty and there's no traffic there and it's a kind of a special quiet day in Israel. Of course now everything has changed, times have changed and we'll get into that just a bit later. Um, I was reading uh, quite an interesting article which was asking the question of um, how do we know or how is it that, in other words, the, the Jewish religion as a practice is, is goes back quite a long ways. But how do we know when they actually started practicing the religion the way we know about it? And the, the theory that this writer said was that it's relatively recent. In other words, even though we know that the Bible was written down, was compiled somewhere around 400 and something BC, and it was written long before that, written down long before that. But uh, his theory was that the, that the Bible, which lists a whole bunch of different religious practices, that those practices weren't actually done until relatively recent times. In other words, in the times of the uh, 200 BC, when, when the uh, Maccabee family took over the kingdom uh, and uh, sort of uh, kind of re-established or reinvigorated Judaism at that time. Uh, so uh, that was his theory, based on a bunch of different things. Uh, some of the things that it's based on is that 
um, they stopped making images with um, with uh, people and animals uh, around that uh, that um, in in households in Jewish households before that time they were always very often accompanied by little idols, little uh, statuettes of foreign gods, uh, Baal and Astarte, for example. These are gods that are found all over the Middle East and found among Jewish households also until around that time of uh, 200 BC. So anyway, that's his theory. Whether it's true or not, it's not that interesting. What's much more interesting is how did the Jewish religion survive once the temple was destroyed? So I said it was a priest-based religion, a sacrifice-based religion. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And what happened or how was it that the religion managed to survive once the whole basis, the foundation, the underpinning was taken away? Uh, and you know, if you are familiar with the Bible, uh, such a large part of it deals with what's supposed to go on in the temple, which sacrifices are supposed to be made and when, and the role of the priests and all this type of thing. And even in political life, uh, in those days, the position of the high priest was like the leader of the whole people. So once these, the temple was destroyed, and the high priest has nothing to do anymore, how is it that this religion managed to survive? So this is the whole story in and of itself, how religion was transformed from a kind of physical, temple-oriented uh, religion to a spiritual, philosophical, and prayer-oriented religion, where the place of doing this didn't matter. So in other words, you could be praying anywhere. And not just saving your prayers to go to Jerusalem to offer your, your, your sacrifices. And this is the way the religion managed to survive because of this complete transformation. Anyway, that's a story in and of itself. Um, let me just see what other notes I think um, um, the most important thing of the yeah, the most important thing about Yom Kippur nowadays is today is that nothing happened on this day. In other words, um, uh, there were no attacks on temples or synagogues, and there was no war that broke out. So the, the holiday passed relatively peacefully, and that's uh, and that's what's important now. Uh, in every synagogue, and not only on Yom Kippur, a prayer is said for the state that that uh, Jews are living in, and also a prayer is said a prayer is said for the state of Israel and its leaders. And sort of this leads me into the next subject, which is of course the trauma that the country is going through right now, including yesterday's trauma of a. Uh, uh, Unpeaceful um, confrontation between religious Jews and non-religious Jews in Tel Aviv, which led to arrests and led to uh, a continuation of the confrontation that the state is facing in general. 
So you all know that this is 38 weeks in a row that on the weekends, hundreds of thousands of people have come out to demonstrate against the government and what it's doing. And these demonstrations have not slowed down at all. And the government's determination to change the state in fundamental ways has also not changed at all. And um, this confrontation is a the most serious division among the Jewish population in Israel since the state was formed 75 years ago. So Israel has gone through many external threats. Uh, of course, the biggest one being its foundation in 1948, where uh, in the War of Independence, 1% of the population was killed. So, you know, if you want to bring that up to Canadian standards, um, <clears throat> that would mean 400,000 people dying in a relatively short time of about six months uh, that the war was, was really fought at. So it was a definitely a traumatic experience, birth experience for the country when its birth was not assured, when it was attacked on, on uh, three different fronts by five different countries. Um, and once it managed to survive that, um, you know, there were the War of 1956, the War of 1967, the War of 1973, and continual um, uh, uh, terror type attacks going on uh, in different periods of time. But all of these were external um, threats to the country, external attacks on the country, which the country managed to survive. What's going on today is a civil war by other means. So it's a civil war, not in um, military or uh, what do you call it? Violent, uh, violently, violent attacks resulting in deaths, but it's a civil war um, on a political uh, sphere and on a uh, not a verbal sphere, um, but uh, a civil war nonetheless. So I'm going to just outline here some of the changes, uh, uh, important changes that have taken place in the country since the election of Mr. Netanyahu in November 2022. So we're coming down, we're now sort of the end of September. So it's just about one year that this new government has been in power. And it has it tried uh, and in some ways did fundamentally change the nature of the country. Um, every government has a political platform and a mandate. Sometimes they fulfill the mandate and they promise, usually they don't, usually they make promises and never do anything about them. But this government has tried and, and to fundamentally overturn the way that, that Israel has been going since the foundation of the state. Uh, it's important to understand that when Israel was founded in 1948, there was no constitution set up. Um, normally, when a country is started from scratch, 
they they say it's useful to have a constitution which sets out the parameters of the country. And we in Canada had our constitution in 1867 when the country was founded, called the BAA Act, the British North America Act, which set out uh, the sort of structure of the country, how it was supposed to be governed, what was the division of powers between the provincial authorities and the federal government. And that was the sort of blueprint of the country. Not a complete blueprint, but a blueprint. In the United States, the Constitution was written down uh, shortly after the country was founded, based on extremely detailed and difficult discussions among the founders of the country as to what sort of country it should be. And again, what would be the division of powers between the states and the federal government, how the leadership was supposed to be created. And then there were 26 amendments to that constitution over the years, um, dealing with all kinds of subjects like the freedom of speech and freedom of association, who had the right to vote, um, women's rights, the prohibition of alcohol, the taking away of the prohibition of alcohol. All of these things were major uh, questions that were decided and set about as constitutional amendments. And the whole idea of a constitution is that it's supposed to be hard to change. It's supposed to be something that really is like a blueprint for building a building. You have your blueprint first, the architect designs the building, writes down all of the parameters of the building, then the building is built. As possible, once the building is being built to change the blueprints, but it's hard because you've already started building the building and you don't want to make too many changes, otherwise you'd have to knock the building down and start all over again. So that's what a constitution's role is. Israel did not have a constitution when it was made. And the reasons for that are very cogent to what the crisis is that's going on today. Um, because the religious people in Israel said that the Torah is, should be the constitution of Israel. If God already told the, the, the Jewish people how to govern themselves, and it's not up to a secular authority to sort of challenge God's will and to make up a constitution on its own. And so the government agreed at that time, well, okay, we don't want to kind of start a civil war just when the country is being formed. We just won't have a constitution. We'll figure it out as we go along. Um, now, of course, not having a constitution is a problem of its own because it, 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 it means that there is no blueprint for how the country is supposed to govern itself. And this blueprint is something that got figured out kind of uh, bit by bit. At some point or other, the Israelis decided to have what's called basic laws. The basic law was supposed to be something like a constitution, but not a constitution. So um, uh, the sort of uh, the, the basic democratic principles were enshrined in the basic laws. But there was no real kind of, uh, there was no real formula 
to decide, well, how do you change a basic law once it's put into effect? Um, how to add more basic laws? Um, uh, and who's to decide whether the government is in violation of one of the basic laws that it already passed? These are the some of the problems that was that were you know that existed. Um, in most democracies, it's understood pretty well that an election and a passing of law in the parliament is not the end of the whole matter. That there has to be some check, some authority, some way that the government by itself doesn't have the right to do absolutely anything it wants to do. The government's often saying, well, we're elected by the people, so we can do anything we want. And the check on our power is that the next time election comes around, you just vote us out of office if you don't like what we're doing. So that definitely is a check in a democracy. But what happens in the four years or five years between elections that a government can do something and get away with it, and only in four or five years is there a check? Now, some people will say, but there is a freedom of the press. So the press is allowed to, in a democracy, to say whatever it wants and to criticize the government. But the government, of course, could ignore that criticism. There's freedom of assembly and freedom of speech, which means that not just the press, but the people themselves are allowed to assemble and to demonstrate against the government. But of course, the government can just ignore those demonstrations also. Um, in in uh, the United States and in Canada to some degree, uh, the courts are entrusted with the power to disallow a law which the courts consider to be democratically passed, but unreasonable or unconstitutional in and of themselves. The United States has had many, many laws that they've passed being voided by the Supreme Court to say that, you know, you can pass a law doesn't mean that it's legal. Um, uh, you know, to give some plenty of plenty examples, I mean, uh, in the southern states, they just passed laws that say the blacks weren't allowed to vote. And so long as these laws were not challenged, they were on the books. And it was only after 1964 that the Supreme Court said, well, no, uh, you know, these laws are unconstitutional and everybody should have the right to vote because everybody is considered equal under the law. So the, the, the um, quarrel which is going on in Israel now is a question of the government considering itself to be the last and final authority on any law it passes. That the Supreme Court of Israel should not be allowed to disallow a law based on what the Supreme Court thinks is legal or not. Because the government says, we were elected by the people. Um, the Supreme Court was not elected by the people. And the Supreme Court, therefore, should not have the power to disallow whatever the government wants to do. Um, it's 
clearly a, a, a clash of who in a democracy has the final word. And does the Supreme Court have a right to disallow a law passed by the elected parliament? In essence, that's what it comes down to. The um, Netanyahu government has established the most narrow, right-wing, nationalistic, racist uh, government with a majority of four out of 120. And that government says it doesn't matter if we have a majority of four or a majority of 120, we still have the power and we want to be able to do whatever we want. And the people who are opposed to this say, yes, you're elected, but it doesn't give you the right to do anything you want. If you were to pass a law, for example, saying that Arabs in Israel who are 21% of the population from now on don't have the right to vote because this is a Jewish state, it's for Jews only, and we want to take away the right of Arabs to vote. And if we just pass a law saying from now on, unless you're a Jew, you can't vote, we're allowed to do it because we're the government. Who's to say no? The Supreme Court, the Supreme Court would say no. The Supreme Court would go back to the Declaration of Independence of Israel, which said that all which said that even though Israel is founded as a Jewish state, I mean that is part of the constitution of Israel, the foundation principle of Israel is that it's a Jewish state, recognized by the United Nations as a Jewish state, that even though it is a Jewish state, that you can't take away rights from everybody else. And the, the Declaration of Independence that all people would be treated equally no matter what their religion, no matter what their gender, no matter what their national origin is, uh, that all people have the same rights. So, you know, there's a conflict between the Declaration of Independence and what the government itself now wants to do and has already done. And that's why so many people are out demonstrating against the government uh, every single weekend. Uh, to this point, their demonstrations have reached somewhere close to a half a million people showing up on one single day to demonstrate against the government, which is you know somewhere near eight percent of the population. So it's a, it is a, a large number of people who are against the government. But the government still says, listen, we're, we're elected, and you're not, so too bad for you. You want to uh, kick us out in the next election? Go ready. Polls, unreliable as they are, say that if an election were held today, this government would definitely be kicked out, and by a large margin. So that's why, you know, so long as the government is able to hold itself together, um, it will stay in power for four years. And only one of those years is now um, in the past. So, you know, that's what the situation is. So um, let me just give a little bit of a taste of why the people are so upset practically. So in other words, 
we know now that sort of from a political standpoint, from an ideological standpoint, the people who are demonstrating against the government are against the government because of this um, idea of a monopoly of power. So now, what did the government do with the power that they had? This is what I'm going to sort of tell you about. Um, so the other thing that they want to do, besides um, getting rid of the power of the Supreme Court to overturn their laws, is to change the way judges on the Supreme Court are nominated. We know in the United States how uh, President Trump naming three Supreme Court judges has had a huge effect on what these judges have decided. One of the most famous ones is the um, the uh, abolition of the rights for a woman to have an abortion. So, it, in other words, it's not just up in the sky who gets to be a Supreme Court judge. If you name enough Supreme Court judges with the same philosophy as you, they will change everyday people's lives. And the government of Israel is not content with saying that we don't have to listen to the Supreme Court. And as an insurance policy, they say, well, we want to nominate who is on the Supreme Court because they regard the Supreme Court as being a bastion of liberal values and the government says we're not a liberal government. In Canada, fortunately, we don't have these kind of, um, we also have a Supreme Court. The Supreme Court also has the last say on any law that's passed in the country, but we don't have a political Supreme Court. The Supreme Court here is nominated, um, uh, the, 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 the candidates for the Supreme Court are nominated by law societies, by university, um, uh, law faculties, by judges themselves who were already judges who can say, I have a great person for the Supreme Court. And there's a whole list that's presented to the Prime Minister, and he can sort of pick and choose here and there, but, um, uh, the, you know, the, the lists that are presented to him are not his lists. They're, they're something that he can look over and make, make recommendations, but um, it's not up to the government itself to decide so solely who gets to be on the Supreme Court. It's a kind of a collaborative effort where the government has a finger or a thumb on the scale, put it like that. But Mr. Netanyahu doesn't want to put a thumb on the scale, he wants to put a foot on the scale. That's the difference. Um, so what have they done? Well, one of the first things that they, so for, for, before saying, what they've done, let's just remind ourselves who's in the government to start with. So the, the Israeli uh, parliament has 120 seats. You need 61 to have a majority. The government has 64, so they're just scraping over the minimum. Of the 64, 30 of them are from the Likud party itself. So the Likud party is used in Netanyahu's party. It was founded as a kind of a coalition. Uh, the word Likud means a kind of a combination, we call it a tying together, 
Now, this time together is of two streams. One is a nationalist stream, and one is a small L liberal business oriented um, uh, group. Uh, over the last 10 or 15 years, the nationalist wing has taken over completely, and all of this small L liberal people have been more or less pushed out. So it's a nationalist government. Nationalist meaning, you know, uh, strongly uh, uh, expansionistic, uh, anti-Arab in general, um, uh, you know, uh, a country that believes that Israel is basically all alone in the world and the whole world is against Israel. And being the only Jewish state, Israel has to sort of stick up for itself at all times and to be a strong country. And um, uh, that any attacks on, on uh, Israel are in essence anti-Semitic attacks because Israel is the only Jewish state. But this is the sort of philosophy that is in the Likud party. It's a party supported mainly, mainly, by Jews who are paid of Middle Eastern origin, uh, who of course had to flee the Arab countries that they originally lived in, and so come to Israel with an anti-Arab mindset to start with. And um, those are the main supporters of the uh, Likud party, not the only ones, but the main ones. And their strength are in the, in the periphery of Israel, um, and not in the sort of center of the country um, where uh, the secular people are more predominant. Um, they're not in the high tech field, they're not in the universities, they're not in the arts. Um, as you can imagine, if you want to translate into American politics, you could say that the same kind of people who vote for Trump are the kind of people who vote for Mr. Netanyahu and his Likud party. You know, being, you know, without being too specific, that's more or less the same mindset. Okay, so that's half of the government. Who's the other half? The other half are two ultra-Orthodox political parties, one representing the Ashkenazi Jews, or Jews of European origin, and one representing the ultra-Orthodox Sephardi Jews, origins of Middle Eastern origin. So these two parties um, have been in the government before, and their whole um, political philosophy is just to represent their own people. So th these two political parties don't appeal to the Israeli public at large and say, vote for us. When they are campaigning, and all of their candidates are only men, all of their candidates are only men who wear black hats and black coats, um, uh, in the case of the Ashkenazi ones, in the case of the ultra-Orthodox Sephardi ones, they're a little bit more wider uh, net, is wider cast, but only people who are, who are ultra-Orthodox um, are people who are their candidates, and practically, that's who votes for them. And their job is to represent their constituency alone. What does their constituency want? 
funding for their schools, no forcing of their schools to teach any science or English. And the, the biggest controversy is about exemptions from serving in the military. So ultra-Orthodox political parties don't want their men, and for sure none of their women, to serve in the military. Well, what do you think is their big objection to serving in the military? I mean, where where does it come from? Where, where does this whole kind of mindset come from? What's underneath this refusal to serve? Is it a belief in non-violence? Absolutely not. Because the Torah itself talks about tons of times when Jews have fought against their uh, enemies. Uh, so it's not a question of non-violence. You know, in, in the American, again, to take the American example, there's a lot of people like Quakers and Amish people who are ultra-religious, who were ultra-religious or who are ultra-religious, who say, I have, I, my objection to serving in the military is I don't believe in violence. So this is absolutely not what these people are motivated by. So they are worried that if their youth are serving in the military, they won't be able to, there isn't enough strict observance of the Jewish laws the way they see them to satisfy these people. In other words, we all know that Jews have to eat kosher food. That's true. The army's food is completely kosher but according to the standards of the army and not according to the standards of the chief rabbis, number one. Number two, you're right. Let's say, for example, in prayer times and prayer observances, they won't be able to observe the uh, laws exactly as they have to be. But I would say that this is a kind of a, let's say, if you want to scratch your ear, it's, it's doing this. So in other words, it's relevant, but it's not the real reason. Yes. No. No. Well, the reason is money. You know, in a in a. It's not the real reason. Um, it is true that the um, students, the students who go to these to the yeshivas, and that's the reason for the exemption, these yeshivas are supported by the state. That's for sure true. And if these people are married and have children, they're supported by the state also. So that's true. Um, but, uh, but the but is, is that, you know, if they would serve in the military, they would also get paid for serving in the military. So maybe the, the difference is, you know, the difference is not, it's not the fundamental reason. Yeah, well, one second, yeah, go ahead. There you go. That's the reason. They don't want their youth to be exposed to anybody else 
who might influence them to leave the ultra-Orthodox way of life, or to even suggest to them that there is an alternative to the ultra-Orthodox way of life. Now, these people, are, their lives are so completely surrounded by the same people doing the same things that if they were to go to the military, these young people might be influenced to change their way of life to being a non-Orthodox person. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. In society in general, ultra-Orthodox uh, people do interact with other people in society. Certainly, uh, you know, they have jobs sometimes outside the Orthodox community. They have customers outside the Orthodox community. They have to interact with the community at large when they go to hospitals. They have to interact with the community at large when they drive their cars and, and, and you know, they, 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 they could get stopped by a police or something or other. Um, there is not, they're not walled off from society completely, but there is interaction. But the interaction is on an individual basis. The interaction is not frequent. Uh, the interaction are with adults who are already formed in their way of thinking. But to take a whole group of these people, separate them completely from their um, authorities, put them in military training camps, mix them with all kinds of other people when they're young, uh, this is a threat to the control that the ultra-Orthodox rabbis have over their youth, and they absolutely don't want it. They want it. That, that for me, is the prime reason why they what their objection is. And when the army has tried to get around these objections, to say, okay, we'll make special units only of ultra-Orthodox. We won't have any women going into those units or teaching those units. Um, we will observe extra strict kosher uh, rules and regulations. We'll, ex we'll observe extra strict Shabbat regulations, so these people don't have to, you know, so much as move a finger on Shabbat. Um, the uptake into these units is small. I'm not saying it's zero, but it's almost zero, because the fear is still there. The fear is. You give them an inch, they'll take a mile, if you know what I mean, that creeping secularization that might happen. Um, and so the Supreme Court, there have already been, you know, one government of Israel has fallen on this more than one. But the 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 the, the whole the whole uh, genesis of the fall of the Netanyahu government before was because the Supreme Court made a judgment and said, look, it's not fair, it's not legal, that some people should be given a permanent exemption from serving the country, and other people would have to go and serve in their place. And, and the Supreme Court gave the government time to adjust their rules, to bring the rules in conformity with what the law is, which is that everybody should be treated equally. And the Netanyahu government just refused to do that. 
and ask for an extension on giving them time to come up with something. And as I've said before, I don't know if I've said it here, they've had 19 extensions before the government, before the Supreme Court finally lost patience and said, that's it, you have to do it. And the government said, we can't do it, and it fell. And that's how the elections took place, which had Mr. Bennett in power, and he formed a multi, uh, a coalition consisting of everybody else except for the ultra-Orthodox and the nationalists and the racists. And he only managed taking everybody else in his government to get a 62-seat majority. And Mr. Netanyahu promptly went ahead and bribed uh, two members of Bennett's own party to switch parties, and the government fell. And then, of course, Mr. Netanyahu won the, um, the uh, next election, the November election. And he won it partly because of Mr. Netanyahu's brilliance in dividing the opposition, and partly because of the opposition's own stupidity in not forming um, strong enough party unions to be able to pass the three and a quarter percent minimum that you need to get elected. So those were two factors that factored into this. So Mr. Netanyahu has over the years alienated so many politicians from the center and center right that nobody would want to go in a coalition with him because he broke his promises so many times. He made promises to serve as a prime minister for only two years and then to allow someone else, Mr. Gantz, to serve as a prime minister. And um, that would uh, enable a sort of a stable government to take place. But he made a condition on that. And this condition was, you know, so long as we pass the budget, then we can go with this rotation because if there's no budget, then there's no blueprint for how the government should spend money. So once he became prime minister, he said, you know what, I'm not passing the budget. We'll just use the budgets from the other last year and we'll never pass a new budget. And that way I'll never have to give up power. And that's what he did. So in that way, other politicians just don't trust him. Um, this government that's in power now could have evolved into a moderate government had Mr. Netanyahu stepped out. So there's plenty of politicians in the center and the center right of Israel's society who say, you know what? We don't need to have either ultra leftists or we don't need to have Arabs or we don't need to have racists and ultra-Orthodox people in the government, we can make a government with a sort of big, broad center of Israeli society on one condition, that Mr. Netanyahu is not a prime minister. And his own party knows it. But since he refuses to step down, the, the government is stuck with the friends it has. So who else are in the government besides these two ultra-Orthodox parties? There is a union of two parties. One party is an outright racist party called Jewish Power. Imagine if you had a party in the American government called White Power. I mean, how would the rest of society look at 
a government that has a party called white power. So this party is called Jewish power. And this party stands for making Arabs in Israel not welcome in the society. Uh, so that's one thing it stands for. The other thing it stands for is in the West Bank or the, the, the territory that was captured by Israel in 1967, that the Arabs should be kicked out of that territory as well, and Israel should annex it and take it over and make it part of the country. So that's their strategy. It's led by a Mr. Ben Gvir, who was convicted of racism so bad that he wasn't allowed to serve in the Israeli army. Imagine the Israeli army will take you know anybody cop but they were allowed to eliminate crazy people from serving in the army because this might constitute a danger to the operations, etc. So he was not allowed to serve in the army because he was deemed to be a racist, which is what he is. He has a picture of Mr. Uh, Mr. Um, Goldstein, uh, who murdered 29 Arabs in cold blood while they were praying in the, uh, in the tomb of the patriarchs in Hebron. Um, and, uh, you know, he was, of course, killed in this operation. But, you know, he's considered a hero by the far right of Israel and including by the minister of the police right now. And has his picture on his wall. But that's how racist he is. He thinks that any Arab who lives in Israel, these are Israeli citizens, 21%, should not be allowed to vote unless they swear a pledge of loyalty to the state. Now, you know, um, the ultra-Orthodox who refuse to serve in the army, who the most extreme of them refuse to recognize Israel altogether as a country, who never sing the national anthem, who never fly the Israeli flag, these people are fine. But the Arabs who were there beforehand, in other words, who were the you know, we'll call them, I won't call them the original inhabitants of the country, but they've been there for a long time. These people should not have any rights because they're not Jewish. Anyway, that's his guy. His associate, Mr. Smotrich, represents a the settlers uh, who live in the West Bank, so there's now 600,000 of these people living in, in what used to be um, the West Bank of the Jordan River, and who is also uh, religious, but not ultra-Orthodox. And uh, so his party is an associate of the Jewish Power Party, and those are the last two constituents of the government of, of, of Mr. Netanyahu. And he asked or forced these two parties to get together to make sure that they would pass over the limit of three and a quarter percent uh, in the previous election, which they did, and now in the last election, they did really well. And uh, they have 14 seats together. Um, and so that's the constituents of this party. He's got, um, he's got in the two ultra-Orthodox parties and the two racist and kind of religious parties, uh, and that's his government. So that's why it's so right-wing, because he's got no center people in it. And uh, nobody else would want to work with him. 
So uh, this, 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 that's who the government is. So let me get back to, okay, I get, I'm not gonna speak for so long because we will continue this another time. But some of the things that they've done. So um, the, it, the, it, the Israeli Arab community has long been uh, discriminated against by the government in terms of, in terms of schools, uh, not having a hospital of their own, not having a university of their own. Remember, these are a fifth of the whole population. Um, so it was finally agreed that, you know, and, and they're undergoing a tremendous crime wave in the Arab community of murders, uh, uh, of uh, murders of, of people there because of the mafia, because of gangs, because of the extortion and intimidation and all this type of thing. And it was agreed that you know part of the problem is that the youth in these communities have they don't have playgrounds, they don't have social places to gather, they don't have any facilities at all in these towns, which are very crowded and overcrowded. The reason the towns are overcrowded is because the government refuses to give them land to, for them to expand and therefore they could build more housing. So because they don't have any land, the housing is all squished together and there's no parks and there's no public facilities. So the government said, okay, well, we'll give you a few hundred million dollars to fix your place up. Um, but the, um, the Minister of Finance, who is nonetheless, and who is, oh, she's not nonetheless, but who is, of course, Mr. Smotrich from one of these two parties, these racist parties, they know uh, I'm not giving the Arabs anything. And uh, it was already agreed that, he, that they would, but he's just put a hold on it. So that's one of the things that they've done. They've also tried to increase the presence of the religious ideas in the public sphere. So that's what this demonstration was about yesterday. Um, they wanted to do a public prayer in Tel Aviv, but in, in the orthodox way, so as to separate men and women. And uh, the Supreme Court already decided that by doing that, what you're doing is you are discriminating against women. So uh, they said there can't be any discrimination against anybody in the public sphere. You want to do it in a synagogue, as a synagogue. But you can't take over a park and say, okay, we're going to put up a fence. We're going to have um, a singer or performer sing. The women will stay all the way in the back, and the men can only get, can be up in the front. So this is essence of discrimination because you're treating two groups of people differently, one better than another, and this is not allowed. But the religious people say, no, this is how we live. We have to do it this way. And um, the Supreme Court said, yeah, but just not in a public place. So they tried to do this in a public place yesterday, and that's where this kerfuffle happened. You know, uh, um, the, uh, the uh, religious accounts want to establish buses, public buses, where the women can sit only in the back of the bus. They want to establish sidewalks where women are only allowed to walk on one part of the sidewalk and not on the other part of the sidewalk. Um, um, the, the, uh, let me, let me.
The Shabbat should be so strictly observed so that, for example, Israel has a phenomenal light rail system. The light rail system is like a kind of a subway, but it goes, you know, on the surface. Now, there has to be maintenance of these subway cars. Um, the ultra-orthodox say, well, and so normally, the subway, the, these cars don't run on Shabbat. So Shabbat would be the day that, that they have maintenance should be done on them, right? They, the ultra-orthodox say, no. You do maintenance only on a regular day, so there'll be no public transportation on a regular day, so that we can do uh, maintenance on Shabbat, and on Shabbat nothing happens. So that's um, you know they've made it much more strict as to when airlines are allowed to operate on Shabbat. It used to be so long as an airline took off before Shabbat starts that it was allowed to land on Shabbat. Now they say no, no planes landing on Shabbat. Um, you know, unless it's an absolute uh, amazing type of thing. Yeah, the, the, the money that was supposed to go to the Arabs, the towns, he gave to the yeshivas instead. So that was the, an even extra, an extra bonus. And that the law of return, you know, the law of return, which says that any Jew who has one Jewish grandparent is allowed to come to live in Israel. So they want to change this law from one grandparent to one parent. The reason being that so many Jews from the ex-Soviet Union are not technically Jews by religious standards. There are now more than half a million of them living in Israel that the ultra-Orthodox parties don't want this. They, of course, they never get vote. They only vote for secular parties. So they want to change the law, saying you must have one Jewish parent to be eligible to come to Israel instead of one grandparent. So these are practical changes that they are doing, um, you know, like that. Um, uh, gender segregation at public events and public parks, and public transportation. Well, they also want Jews who are accused of terrorism. And there's a plague of these ultra-nationalist Jews now are attacking our uh, villages in the West Bank because they don't want them to live there or to be, you know, comfortable there. Um, so these political parties say that if anyone who's Jewish and convicted of terrorism should not be considered a terrorist um, and should not be treated at all like a, a criminal, but as a kind of a, a, a national hero. And, um, you know, they, they're outraged that these people should be given prison sentences. And they're, you know, uh, the public security minister is Mr. Ben Gavir himself, who, who is, like I said, uh, you know, a convicted racist. So he wants to spring any of these people out of jail who got convicted. Uh, you know, kosher supervision should go back to the rabbinate and not to the individual rabbis. Um, uh, and also that the power of rabbi, this is very important, maybe we'll finish with this, that the power of rabbi in a divorce case, you know that divorces in Israel and marriages in Israel are strictly done by the rabbinate and by the orthodox rabbinate. I don't mean uh, that the, the conservative rabbi from uh, 
from Shara Zion, if he were practicing in Israel, he wouldn't be allowed to marry anybody. But um, what they want is that in the case of a divorce, not only does the divorce be decided by the rabbi, but all the financial uh, conditions attached to the divorce. So in other words, uh, pro division of property, division of pensions, um, uh, children's uh, visitation rights, all of these things. In other words, a divorce is, has to be a religious divorce, but all these other things can be decided in the regular court. What they want to do is change that to make the rabbi responsible for everything. And as you know, in a Jewish divorce, only the man has the right to divorce a woman. The woman can't divorce a man. So if a woman wants a divorce, the rabbi can say, the, the man can say, I'll grant you a divorce, but you have to give me all your money. I'll grant you a divorce, but you have to give me your apartment. I'll grant you the divorce, but uh, you can't see the children. Otherwise, I'm not giving you a divorce. So what the, this government wants is that the rabbis should be able to enforce these conditions and that you shouldn't be able to go to a civil court to order a division problem. That's the whole idea. Anyway, uh, this is just a, a kind of a bit of a taste. Um, and, uh, you know, I was told, okay, I got to stop at three o'clock, so it's like three ten. So uh, questions, comments, I'm here. It doesn't matter. You know, the light is not shining in my eyes. It doesn't matter. So. So great question. What happens? How do these divisions break out? So there are censuses that are taken. Of course, the censuses are self-reported. In other words, they can ask somebody, "Are you ultra-orthodox?" They could say yes or no. So we don't have like super, super, super exact figures, but pretty close figures. So the ultra-orthodox population defined as the kind of people who wear black hats and black coats. We'll call those ultra-orthodox. They're between 10 and 15% of the population right now. However, 25% of all elementary school children are now ultra-orthodox. So it says, because they have such large families, that their percentage will grow in the future. Secular Israelis, meaning people who are not observant at all, Somewhere around 35 to 40% consider themselves to be secular. That's their main means of identification. They're secular. They don't observe Shabbat. They don't wear a kippah, etc. Then you've got around 25% who are traditional, meaning they're not ultra-Orthodox. They may not even wear a kippah all the time, but they consider themselves to be traditional Jews following the holidays and the calendar and all that kind of thing. So that's that group. And like I said, 21% are Arabs, so they're just not even in the Jewish population, but they're Arabs. And then you've got, um, you've got uh, uh, pretty well, that's the division. So you've got the, like they say, these four tribes, the ultra-Orthodox tribe, the religious nationalist tribe, the secular tribe, and the Arabs. Those are the four constituent elements of the, the Israeli population. The secular are the largest of the grouping, but they're not in power now. So they're the ones who are demonstrating. Somebody else, yeah, sir, in the back there. Yeah. Uh, 
Yes, they were. They were planted by the people Yeah, they all from Yes, that's right. So, so the proportions have changed over the years. Fast forward, absolutely for sure. Um, the exemption for yeshiva students serving the army, when the state was established, where 400 yeshiva students were given an exemption in 1949. Today, 60,000. It just gives you an idea of the difference in the number of how many people get exemptions. And the ultra-Orthodox political parties in those days were very small. So they got like four seats, not 14 seats. Um, the religious party, meaning the ones who were religious but not ultra-Orthodox, they were serving, they were relatively moderate in their political stance. They served both with the Labour Party, very often with Ben Gurion. He had them in there in his, uh, in his um, cabinet. Um, they wanted to give Israel a Jewish character, but they were not strong enough to try to impose this Jewish character on everyone. <laughs> now, these parties, that's what they're doing. So that's why the resentment is there. If people said, look, let us live our lives and you can live your life, nobody would care. But once they say, no, our way of Judaism is the only way of Judaism, that's one point. Because over the years, um, the non-Orthodox forms, in the old days, either you were religious or you were not. But over the years in Israel, uh, partly because of American influence, uh, conservative and reformed Judaism got a toehold in the country and started to get popular. And of course, this is seen as a threat to the Orthodox, and they're trying to suppress these groups as hard as they can. So that's another element of why there's this opposition. One of their one of the representatives of Reform Judaism got elected as a from the Labour Party as a member of Parliament, a member of Knesset, and he's saying to Mr. Netanyahu, "You're condemning all these people." who are stopping a religious uh, service in Tel Aviv, but why aren't you condemning the ultra-Orthodox who every single month are stopping the women from praying in out loud in Jerusalem at the way they walk? So there is this, you know, uh, hypocrisy. Mr. Netanyahu, I have to also mention, is facing three charges, um, criminal charges. And so long as he stays prime minister, he doesn't have to go before the courts. So he's desperate to stay as prime minister. Just today, today, in today's paper, there was an admission by a convicted uh, mobster that he gave Mr. Netanyahu a million euros. So um, Mr. Netanyahu said it's not true. So the question is, do you believe somebody who says he gave money to somebody? Or do you believe somebody who says, I never got any money? You know, Chances are the person who said he gave it is, is gave it. Because, you know, why would he say he gave it if he didn't give it? Now, a guy could say, I didn't get it. There's lots of reasons why he says I didn't get it. Mr. Menendez, the senator from New Jersey, was found with gold bars with uh, stacked suitcases of money. What's he going to say? I never got it. You know, is there. If somebody searched Mr. Netanyahu's house, they'd find the same stuff and more. Anyway. 
Any other questions, comments? Yes, ma'am. What do they do? Right. 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 Well, that's a question, always a question brought up. The, their answer is, we are protecting the state by praying to God. Because God controls everything. If our prayers weren't heard, God would abandon Israel. And Israel is only safe because of our prayers. So that's number one. That's the first thing. The second thing to say is that warfare today is not the same as warfare of the olden days. So the idea is you don't need to have a huge army physically to protect the country. What you need is a smart army, a well-equipped army. Like half the fighting takes place in, in, in the computer, on computers, uh, online, with drones, with spy satellites, with all this type of thing. You don't need a million soldiers lining up and standing around waiting for something to happen. So the nature, Israel has talked about having a volunteer army because they say, number one, to have a conscription, it's expensive, it costs the state, not only does it cost the state money from paying these people, but you're taking them away from their jobs where they would be earning money and paying taxes, and now they're not. So the question has become, does Israel need a volunteer army? And there's pros and cons to that, to, to that um, you know, subject, but you know, at the beginning, the army was considered to be the state-building enterprise, that they took youths from all different backgrounds, brought them into the army. That's where they became Israeli citizens. That's where they learned to speak Hebrew. That's where they learned all the tools of the trade so that when they finished their army service, they could go out to get jobs in, in all kinds of areas. You know, that was, it was an integrating factor at the beginning of the time of the state. Now, um, you know, it, it's still regarded that way, but Israel of, nine, 19, of, of, of 2023 is not Israel of 1948. You know, it's a completely different uh, uh, country with a completely different uh, set of rules. And nowadays, there, there are secular Jews who say, well, you know, if they can get an exemption, well, I want an exemption. Why should I have to serve if they're not serving? You know? And so lots of them are applying for exemptions, and the army is now saying, well, okay, well, what do we do about this whole business? You know, maybe we ought to just give up conscription altogether. But, you know, Israel is not, as they say, Israel is not Canada. You know that in, in Israel, Canada is regarded as an example. If you want to say, you know, we don't live in a peaceful neighborhood, they'll say, well, Israel is not Canada, because Canada is regarded as like this the safest, most unthreatened country in the world. They say, we need an army. Canada doesn't need an army. Nobody's threatening Canada. But Israel is, is, has enemies on all sides, right? So, so that's why they say we still need to maintain uh, an army because, you know, even as the Middle Eastern is, is changing, Israel still has serious enemies all over the place. Iran and Hezbollah and Hamas and and then Islamic Jihad, and who knows who else, um, you know, are threatening the state of Israel. Remember, Hamas in Gaza doesn't say we 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 um, doesn't say we want to make a peace agreement with Israel, but we don't like the terms. 
What they say is we don't want Israel, period. So once you're into that situation, you, you need a way to protect yourself from them. And that's uh, why Israel needs a, you know, a constantly standing army, which is constantly uh, you know, uh, on, the, on the alert. Because otherwise, what happens is what happened in the 1973 war, which if you saw the movie, you know, they didn't believe there were their own spies in Egypt told them Israel is the Egyptians are going to invade, and they said, No, we don't believe them. So that was what happened. Anyway, anyone else? So, um, yeah, the last one. Well, that's right. I mean, uh, let me just say that the resentment is not just because they don't serve the army. The resentment is because they don't pay taxes. So they don't pay taxes because they don't work. They don't work because they have no training in schools to learn anything useful. So the state gives them welfare and child allowances on the one hand, and the secular people serve in the army on the other hand. So there's this great disconnect between these two things. Let me just finish off by saying that a poll was just taken in Israel, I read about it two weeks ago. One third of Israelis are thinking of leaving the country and moving abroad. That's a big number. And that's the meaning that what they're gonna do. Remember, you know, uh, you know, after Bill 101 was passed, um, you know, there were polls taken and more than 50% of English Quebecers said, well, we were gonna leave. And a lot of a lot of us did leave, but not half. So when, when a poll is taken, people could think one thing, but they do something else. But it's an indication of how how completely this government has changed things to the point where the high-tech industry has warned the government that, that high-tech people are leaving. The Bank of Israel, the governor of the Bank of Israel said this is a disaster for the Israeli economy. The Israeli stock market has gone down more than any other major stock market this year in a real country. And I'm not talking about Zimbabwe or some stupid country like that. Um, the uh, the Moody's and Fitch, uh, which uh, are, are uh, institutions which assess worthiness of a country's credit, have downgraded Israel because of this this uh, these events. And of course, a downgrade from Moody's is something. It means you have to pay more interest when you want to borrow money. So Israel is in a real crisis. And um, you know, to finish off the they say the temple was destroyed. I referred to the temple before. Um, the temple was destroyed in Israel, not because of the Romans. They were the ones who actually knocked it down. But it was because the Jews in, in, in Israel at the time were so divided against each other that they allowed the Romans to, to come in and do what the Romans did. Anyway, that's the story. So uh, maybe next week, someone asked me to give a little highlight of what I'm going to speak about. I wanted to speak at least in part about this uh, ethnic cleansing and ethnic crisis in, in Armenia that's going on in that place because it's 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 a game changer, put it like that. So uh, thank you so much, and uh, let's hope for more nice weather. So I'm on my bike, and uh, we'll see you all uh, next week.